An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people, from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists, to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our guest is Nell Minow. It's hard to know where to begin in singing Nell's praise. Nell was president of ISS, Institutional Shareholder Services, the leading proxy advisor, with proxy advisors first gained prominence. She's written three incredibly important books on corporate governance with Bob Wooks, including Howard Accountability and Corporate Governance, which has taught in so many graduate schools that is now in its fifth edition. She's the vice chair of Value Rich Advisors, appears periodically on Motley Fool's Money podcast, and has written op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and USA Today. And then there are the things that make Nell Nell. She's also the movie mom, and her movie Immediate Criticism has appeared in the Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times, USA Today, and Slate. She's also worked as a lawyer for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the Federal Office of Management, Budget, and the Department of Justice. And most recently, she's found in publishing company, specializing in nonfiction books, and she's already had bestsellers with books about movies and music. Welcome, Nell. Well, thank you very much. That was a wonderful introduction. So let me start with this. Corporate governance, movies, law, you helped invent proxy advising as a feature of today's business landscape. You're a movie reviewer. You've been a best-selling author and now a publisher with best-selling books. How did this come to be? What's your origin story? What made <laughs> you who you are personally and professionally? Well, I'm the oldest of three girls, and my parents are really responsible for my origin story. When I was nine years old, my father was named by President Kennedy to be the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, and he gave a speech to the National Association of Broadcasters that really turned the world upside down for the entire world of television. He told them that they needed to do better in exchange for their public license and that they risked losing their licenses if they didn't do better. This was in the era where they claimed that the Flintstones was historical information that was of value to children. Um, so uh, he helped to start PBS. He helped to start Sesame Street. He helped to start the presidential debates. And he was constantly speaking truth to power, constantly questioning, constantly very devoted to the Jewish idea that we are here to heal the world, tikkun olam. And that really inspired my sisters and me. We haven't quite had that kind of a high profile or wide ranging life, but all of us in our own way have tried to follow in that path. So that was the vast Wasteland speech. Let me, let me quibble with you about your not having quite the profile. <laughs> you want to go over your sisters. I mean, one is the dean at Harvard Law School. The other is the world's leading library law expert. Yeah. And, and you've only changed corporate governance in America. So 
She's the former dean, but yeah, that's true. Now she's writing important books, including one this year about uh, the future of news. So yeah, my sisters are very impressive. As are let me so let me ask you a broad question and, and see what direction you want to take this. You've been a sharp-eyed observer of American capitalism for four decades. What do you think has changed, either for better or worse, in a macro sense? Well, my longtime partner in, in crime, the one who really got me into this field, Bob Monks, and I often say that we're living in a Dickensian best of times, worst of times scenario. Because when we first began at ISS, first of all, he offered me the job in December of 1985, and I was eight and a half months pregnant. And he explained to me what this job was going to be. And I explained to him that I was about to have my second child and that I would need some time off. And he said, well, how about if you come to work uh, part-time after Labor Day, which would have given me nine months at home with my two children. And I said, that sounds great to me. So during that nine months, he tried to market the services that he had described to me that we were going to be selling, and nobody was interested. Everybody pretty much threw him out of the office, but several of them said, we have no interest in what you're selling in any way. But what we would like is some advice on how to vote proxies, because after decades of proxies with nothing but routine matters, reelect the board of directors, approve the auditors, all of a sudden now we're getting these very complicated issues about anti-takeover provisions, and we really need some guidance on it. And the people who are in that business already are on the one hand, on the other hand, people. They don't make recommendations. They only provide information. So that's what we want. So nine months later, I showed up. Uh, and said, okay, here I am to do what we discussed. He said, that's all out the window. We're going to uh, give people advice on how to vote proxies instead. And uh, I said, that is a much better business than what you're describing before, because what you were telling me about before was very much tied to our hours. This is something we can write one set of recommendations and sell it to a lot of people. And unlike most of the advice that goes in the financial world where that you've got some exclusivity, you'd like to have better advice than your competitor. This is one where everybody wants everyone to have the advice. So our customers will be our best salespeople. And we had zero clients except for a, a former uh, roommate of Bob's in college for two or three years. And then all of a sudden it sort of hit and everybody decided to buy the product. But yeah, that's how proxy advice got started. What's better now is that in those days, in those two or three years when we had no clients and we had a lot of time to think about where what we wanted, we said it sure would be great if institutional investors would recognize that proxy voting is important. It sure would be great if boards of directors would be more than rubber stamps. I think we made a lot of improvement in that area as well. On the other hand, CEO pay, I, I had a little moment of nostalgia reading the obituary of Rand Ariscog uh, of ITT because his was the first CEO pay plan I ever complained about. And that was $11 million, which seems like chump change today compared to what we're paying CEOs. So that's completely out of whack. And in many ways, for example, the four very pernicious rulemakings that were shoved through in the end of the Trump administration, the pushback against shareholders has been very much two steps forward, one step back. 
So some things are much better than we ever dreamed back in those days. One of the things we hoped in those days, someday maybe corporate governance would be taught in law schools and business schools. That's definitely true now. There's scholarship about it now. So all of that is, is to the good, but there are some things that are much worse than we ever expected. What do you think facilitated the positive change? Is it a change in the nature of the capital markets? Is it a change in the law? What, what is it that's caused the change in how investors think about their governance responsibilities? It used to be you took the Wall Street walk if they didn't like something. Now right. you're indexed, you can't. You right. used to they used to defer to management and, and now, as you say, people are looking at their proxy obligations seriously. I think there are a number of factors. One of them is what I was describing that was going on in uh, 1985 and 1986. All of a sudden, for the first time, there were items on the proxy that were complicated and controversial. They were anti-takeover provisions, green mail, et cetera. And so it was the takeover era that was the first big shift that began to wake up the, the institutional investors. Second, in the just a few years later, the issue of CEO pay became very important. And as I always say, it went from the business pages to the front pages of the newspaper, to the editorial pages, and finally to the comic pages. It became such a pervasive issue in the early 90s that, of course, the notorious tax code change that was supposed to help. But in fact, for gasoline on the fire that Bill Clinton put in place, you know, became a very, 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 very important issue. So again, that was another big wake up call followed by, if we can just go down memory lane for a minute, the dot-com collapse, the Enron era accounting disasters, and the financial meltdown. All of those things really were huge wake-up calls to the institutional investors that they had missed some important signals, that they were not getting the information they needed. So all of that, I think, made changes. And then it was, there was a lot of help also from the government, the famous Avon letter of 1988 issued by the uh, Labor Department telling uh, ERISA fiduciaries that proxy voting was a fiduciary act in response to some non-fiduciary action on the part of some CEOs. And also, you know, people like you, people like me, nagging at them all the time I had, had an impact as well. So that's the trip down the river lane. Let's look forward for a second. What do you think the major challenges are today? There's no question in my mind that the major challenge today is what I would call the Citizens United problem or the dark money problem. I spent much of 2020 fighting these four rulemakings. So let me just talk about them for a minute because I think they exemplify what the biggest challenge is today. There are two rulemakings at the Labor Department, two rulemakings at the Securities and Exchange Commission, both of which corporations spent many, many, many millions of dollars to suppress shareholder votes. In the same way that we see voter suppression on the electoral side, we see a lot of voter suppression happening on the shareholder side to suppress the vote, to make it more difficult to vote, to make it more difficult to file a shareholder resolution, to make it more difficult to get information about shareholder resolutions. And corporations poured so much money into it. And I wouldn't mind so much if they were transparent about it, but they created a lot of these fake front groups with names like Citizen for a Better Tomorrow. And they were all sock puppets for each other. They're all quoting each other without revealing that they were all funded by the same people. And I'll just give one example. 
in one of the recent rulemakings that's going on at the SEC right now about ESG disclosures, there is a comment from some group like the Texas Public Policy Foundation, some very generic name like that. And it has as signatures, two pages of anonymous names. So it has just the, the first name and the last initial. So we have no idea who these people are. And they don't reveal that their funding is coming from the oil companies. The oil companies set up fake social media profiles. They set up fake news sites. They had a YouTube video, you know, and they don't say who's behind it. And the same thing we see going on legislatively that we see at the state legislatures, this, this, this avalanche of corporate money that distorts the very fundamental principles of democracy. And I think that is the biggest challenge. What do you think has changed in terms of how public companies regard their investors? When I was first working in this field, and as I said, we had no clients, so I had a lot of time to do other things. I would go out and I would speak to groups of corporate secretaries. It's one thing about the corporate secretaries is they love to meet and they love to be with each other and have conferences. So I spoke at a million conferences of corporate secretaries and a couple of them would come up to me and say, boy, our policy has always been if we get a shareholder proposal, we just toss it to the legal department, tell them to get it kicked out. Never occurred to us until we heard you, maybe we could pick up the phone and talk to these people. And I would talk to corporate secretaries and they would say, here is what we do with the buy side and here's what we do with the sell side. And I would say, and what do you do with the hold side? What do you do with the actual shareholders who are just holding the stock? And they just weren't thinking in those terms. I think that's changed very dramatically. And I think that most major companies now understand that they need to make friends with their shareholders before they get into trouble. As I noted in the introduction, you're something about polymath with accomplishments in film criticism, and publishing and economic history. Is there a through line there somehow in terms of what attracts you? or how you think about your interests, or the independent parts of your life, or do they want to stand back to listening to your dad's talk and, and thinking that everything in the world should just do better? You know, I'm very much a, a, a bossy oldest child. And when I was in high school, one of my teachers said to me, do you think you can make a living as a smart aleck? And I didn't realize that that was rhetorical. I was thinking it was kind of career counseling. And I thought, yeah, you know, I probably could. And it turns out you can. Um, I, it took me a long time to realize because I did think of my jobs as being extremely disparate. And it really wasn't until the internet and Google that people understood that, as somebody said to me, you're both people. Yes, I'm both people. I'm the film critic and the corporate critic. But it, and my husband says he thinks it's funny that I managed to find out one but two jobs where I do nothing but criticize people all the time. But I do understand now that it, there is a through line, and that is that all my life, and this includes my time in the government, I've always been interested in why things don't work the way they're supposed to. And in the government, I looked at domestic regulatory programs. Everybody wants the environmental rules to improve the environment. If they don't, what is wrong with the way the rule is structured? Everybody wanted CEO pay to be more rational. And so they passed 162M of the tax code and it had the opposite effect. Why didn't that work? So I'm very interested in why things don't work. I'm interested in frauds and failures of all kinds. And I went to the University of Chicago Law School 
which I always say is like getting a degree in economics as well as a degree in law. And I previously had no background in economics of any kind and didn't really think about it too much until I started working at corporate governance. And I said, wait a minute, none of this is working the way they told me in law school. They told me about the free market. They told me about accountability to shareholders. They told me about all kinds of wonderful things that that these companies are trying to thwart, that they're trying to put up obstacles. And in fact, I have to tell you how Bob Monks and I met, which is that we were both working. He had a very high level. I had a very low level on what was called the Commission on Regulatory Relief in the Reagan administration. He was working for then Vice President Bush and I was working at OMB. And we would be in meetings together and I would go in very optimistic that corporate leaders were going to come in and say, I want the market to be freer and I want better competition. And they, every single corporate person that came in said, hey, you know, I really believe in regulatory relief, but we just need these regulations to impose barriers to entry and limit such liability and help us externalize our costs. Those are the rules that we need. And I say, well, that's the opposite of the free market. So that really helps me a lot when I talk about corporate governance, because I generally we will come down more on the side of market principles than the corporation leaders that I'm arguing with. Interesting. So if you were to advise current SEC chair delegates, the SEC obviously has multiple bad dates, investor protection, smooth capital markets. What would you advise him to do first as a North Star? And then secondly, any specifics? I like to remind the SEC that their job is to be the investor's advocate, but they forget that a lot. They tend to listen to the lobbyists uh, who come to them, the K Street lobbyists who come to them on behalf of corporations. Shareholders don't have anybody like that. And so I would say that the provision that was dropped from Dodd-Frank because it was just too controversial is something we need to revisit. And that is, shareholders must be able to remove directors. If a director does not get more than 50% of the vote, he or she should not be allowed to serve. Now you may know this, but there was one company where not a single director got 50% of the vote. All nine directors failed to get a majority of the vote. And per the policy of the company, they turned in their resignations to themselves and then I can only use a movie analogy and say like a Marx Brothers movie, they rejected their resignations and they all stayed in place. So we need to be able, without spending $30 million, as engine number one did, to throw out directors who are on the compensation committee that overpays, who are on the audit committee that has too many write-downs, who are on the nominating committee that doesn't have a good solid board. And I think the way to do that is through listing standards. I think that the commission could work with uh, the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange and say, as a listing standard, you have to require that directors get at least 51% of the vote in order to serve. Let's end with a series of sort of quick questions. Let's, let's okay. combine two of your prior profile passions. What business movies do you think got it right and which got it terribly wrong? <laughs> Well, I have several movies that I think got it right. My favorite one from 1954, The Solid Gold Cadillac. And I sometimes show the first 10 minutes of that movie when I talk to students because it's a shareholder meeting 
where the owner, uh, holder of 10 shares gets up and says, I think the CEO's overpaid. I believe the CEO pay in that movie is $150,000. But if you add three zeros on to every number in the movie, you would see that the issues have not changed. So that's a solid gold catalog. I also recommend The Big Short. I think that's a terrific movie that gets it right. And then a little movie that hardly anyone's heard of, but that I highly recommend starring Philip Seymour Hoffman based on the true story of the biggest bank embezzlement in the history of Canada. It's called Owning Mahoney. And the great thing about that movie is that it makes it clear that every single person in the movie from the loan officers of the bank who turned down somebody whose account is then embezzled uh, to the, of course, embezzler himself, to the investigators, the auditors, the casino manager who knows that this guy is not really rich and allows him to spend all the money. Everyone's evaluating risk at every moment, whether some of them are doing it better than others, but it's all about risk assessment. And so owning Mahoney, another really one that really gets it right and gets it wrong. Okay. This is a terrible movie in every way. Adam Sandler did a remake of a great Gary Cooper movie uh, called Mr. Deeds. The original is called Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And I'll just say that they have an annual meeting at the climax of the movie and everything is wrong about the annual meeting. It drives me nuts. It would take one phone call to figure out how to fix all of that, but they just didn't bother. What are you reading right now? Well, I, uh, just like I like to have a lot of careers going at once, I like to have a lot of books going at once. I just finished a great book about the history of crossword puzzles called Thinking Inside the Box. I absolutely loved it. I also just uh, finished a terrific mystery called The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Interestingly enough, it was originally published in the UK with the title The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Somehow she picked up another half of a death crossing the Atlantic. And I just started uh, Anansi Boys by Neil Gaiman. And last question, what's the one fact or belief that you wish everybody knew? This is an easy one for me because it's a really big issue. If I could ban one word from the vocabulary of everybody, it would be the word busy. So particularly in Washington, where it is everybody's favorite word, it's a big humble brag in Washington, I'm busy. It is a challenge because it's so universal. But if you eliminate that word by saying, how are you doing? I'm busy or I'm too busy to do that. If you eliminate that word, you will instantly, permanently and powerfully be more conscious about your choices, more effective in your communication. And when you stop describing yourself as busy, you'll feel like you're more in control of your schedule and you'll open yourself up to ideas and opportunities that will take you where you want to be. So everybody should just stop using that word. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Outside In. I'm John Koenig and our guest has been Nell Middle. Nell has been a powerful and effective force to improve American capitalism for generations now. Thanks, Nell. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show, and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com. <laughs>